Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. Um, we asked for help this morning. It's really encouraged and, and challenged by Colossians 2 this morning that CJ read. And we just, we just pray that to you. We ask um, that no one would take us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition uh, and not according to Christ. Uh, we are so vulnerable um, to being taken captive by ideas um, that are not of you. Um, but help us to hold fast to you. Um, help us to be thoughtful. Um, but more than anything, help us to find the fullness of deity in you, that we would be so enamored and captured by the person and work of Christ, by the gospel of Jesus, um, by the fruit of the Spirit, by the things uh, that are eternal, uh, that they would uh, overwhelm and infect and uh, radically change our engagement with the politics of the world. Uh, we praise you. We ask for your help this morning. Uh, please help me to speak uh, truly. Uh, pray that you would help technology to be smooth and not confusing. Give people extra patience to listen to a sermon on a screen, um, but unite us together. Um, we are gathered, uh, two or three are gathered and the spirit unites us. And so help us to live and settle into that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, welcome. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to be here this morning. Uh, grateful to be gathering with you today around, uh, politics. Uh, it's such an important, um, it's an important part of our life, um, and right now it feels like an especially loud part um, where you can sort of hardly get away from it. And uh, CJ's tightrope analogy from last week is so apt, um, navigating issues of authority and power, responsibility and justice. Uh, these are so challenging. In Matthew 10, uh, when Jesus first sent his disciples out to share the gospel as missionaries, he reminded them that they were entering a toxic political climate. Uh, in Matthew 10, verses 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, we aren't being flogged or dragged before courts, but, but that feels at times like an apt description in today's political climate. Uh, one wrong step and you could lose your job, you could lose a relationship. Uh, worse, cancel culture is very real um, and getting realer uh, with every week. As we look to engage politics to be ambassadors for Jesus in the public square, we need to ask ourselves, am I being both wise and innocent? Uh, that's a tall order, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Um, we need both. We need to strive for both. I need to simultaneously live my life in light of God's story, committing myself to nothing short of Christ-likeness, while also being shrewdly aware of the schemes underneath godless politics. Uh, what are the unspoken commitments underneath the kingdoms of the world? We might be using the same words. We might be using biblical words, freedom, dignity, violence, truth, but do we mean the same thing by them? And because we all 
personally, we come in with our wolfish tendencies in our own heart. I need to be shrewd about myself. Um, Have I been taken by false narratives? Are there any unspoken commitments hiding underneath my political opinions and persuasions? Or am I pure in heart, wholly devoted to God, shaped by his kingdom, his ways, and his aims? Um, One of the things as we move from creation to fall, uh, we realize that every political ideology preaches a gospel of some kind. Uh, When you look closely at all the modern ideologies, you'll see that liberalism idolizes freedom. Conservatism idolizes tradition. Democracy idolizes consent. Uh, Socialism idolizes equality. Nationalism idolizes tribe and identity. Progressivism idolizes progress. Technocracy idolizes expertise. Any ideology taken to its logical extreme becomes idolatrous. Uh, Political discussions often have an almost religious fervor to them. If we could just change this or that thing, elect this or that person, the country would be saved. Uh, David Coises, a political theologian, um, he writes, each of these ideologies is not a static set of principles, but tells a story that mirrors and imitates in some fashion the biblical redemptive narrative. Each of these stories has a counterpart to creation, fall into sin, redemption, and consummation, along with all the expectation that someone or some group will play the part of Messiah, ushering in the happy ending to the tale. Uh, If you're looking for uh, a book on political theology to go deeper in that, David Coyes' book is really great. Um, it's called Political Visions and Illusions. Um, and, and what he does after introducing this idea that all ideologies are idolatrous, ultimately, he spends a chapter on each, looking at the history, the core narrative of values, and sort of mapping it onto a creation narrative. And what I appreciated so much about his book was his commitment to not just criticize ideologies, but to point out how each uniquely identifies important truths. Um, here he, he, gives, he explains himself. He says, if ideologies flow out of an idolatrous worldview, this does not mean that they have no positive features or nothing to teach us. In fact, if, idolo- if ideologies err by making a god out of something in creation, and if that created a thing nevertheless remains good, then it stands to reason that the ideologies and their followers have uncovered fragments of the truth that perhaps even Christians have failed to see. And so as Christians, we should give credit where credit's due. Uh, Freedom is a good thing. Uh, Oppression is an important uh, thing to focus on. Um, And so as ideologies look and and see all these things, we should recognize that. But then they ultimately break down because they value those things absolutely. Uh, Politics is often defined simply as two or more people cooperating for some end. Um, and that's a, that's a, a fine definition of politics, but that d- definition um, is incomplete. Something important is missing there. Um, another writer, uh, Jonathan Lehman, he writes, every secular conception of politics restricts its gaze to the relationship between two parties, an earthly ruler and an earthly ruled. 
but a theological conception of politics accounts for an all-defining third party, the one who is the source of all legitimate authority or rule in the universe. And so as we enter the public square, as we talk about politics, we know that we have a king who reigns over all of it. As we sort of discuss and debate who should have authority and what they should have authority to do and, and who they should have authority over, we remember God. Um, politics is always contained inside religion. A nation's gods determines its politics. First religion, then politics. The political always involves spiritual realities and pure people's spiritual state plays out in political terms, whether they live in harmony with the divine king's righteousness or in rebellion against him. And so the challenge for us is how do we live within these systems, within these systems that have their own gods, their own uh, standards and values that are outside and even independent, maybe contrary to God? How do we live within these systems while not ourselves being deformed by them? Uh, Jesus doesn't just call us, uh, he doesn't call us to leave the world, but to live distinctly in the world. He's sending us out to be ambassadors for him and his kingdom. How do we move through idolatrous systems, wise as serpents and innocent as doves? Um, it's not an easy task. It's a, a challenging task. Jamie Smith writes, there is something political at stake in our worship and something religious at stake in our politics. And so first he's saying there's something political at stake in our worship. Being a Christian is a political statement. Um, Christ is the king of kings. Uh, your boss might be a king in the kingdom that is your workplace. London Breed might be a king in the kingdom that is San Francisco. Uh, Gavin Newsom, Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, they are all kings. Uh, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, uh, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, um, these are kings. Teachers, moms and dads, uh, they are kings in their spheres. You might be a king, you are a king in some capacity, but Christ is the king. King of Kings. There's something political at stake in our worship. Uh, Peter Lightheart says that any church in a city is a warning to its rulers. Something bigger is here. Uh, at the same time, though, there's something religious at stake in our politics. The influence uh, between politics and religion goes both ways. Um, our political life uh, as Americans in a democratic, liberal, capitalist, progressive society affects our worship. It, it shapes us. It's a liturgy. Um, so when we claim freedom of religion, that shapes our understanding of religion. Uh, we shouldn't retire the phrase. It's a, it's a useful phrase and it has a useful history. But we should also remember that as Christians, we actually don't feel free to believe whatever we want to believe. Uh, not in any ultimate sense, right? This is God's world, and I'm compelled to submit to his rule, uh, to believe whatever he tells me to believe. Um, one of the uh, books I read this week recounted a great observation from a American philosopher, uh, Wolstersdorf, and, and he observed how Protestants love Martin Luther. Um, obviously, he began the Protestant Revolution, and so we like him for that. Um, he has so many warts, like so many problems. He was a sinner through and through, and he knew that, and we now know that more than he does. And he, well, he actually knows that now way more than um, way more than he did, but he was a guy who spoke truth to power, right? He stood up 
to bullies for the sake of truth. And uh, Protestants love that. Uh, liberals love that. And this is most famous in his Here I Stand speech, where he is standing before the Catholic Church at his excommunication. And after he gives all his reasons for his beliefs, all his um, uh, protesting against the doctrine of the Catholic Church, he says this. He says, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do other words. Otherwise, God help me. Amen. And, and Protestants are, are cheering on the sidelines. Like, we're so excited this. I can't go against my conscience. It's a great line, and it's a good word. But Wolsterstorff contrasts this final speech with another final speech, uh, the speech of Polycarp, who was an early Christian martyred uh, in 150 uh, AD. So, uh, about 100 years after Jesus, right? And so Polycarp found himself in a similar situation, uh, being asked to recant his faith by the government of the day. The governor asks him to deny Christ and promises that if he will, his life will be spared. And this is his response. He says, for 80 and six years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? This is different from Luther's response. Um, subtly different, but significantly. Uh, Wolsterstorff observes that Christians in the West don't resist government incursions like Polycarp. We resist it like Luther. Our resistance is in the name of religious freedom. We will not declare that Christ is our king and that loyalty to our king requires that we not concede to the government's demands. There's no Polycarps among us, only Luther's. Uh, but Wolsterstorff continues, he says, fidelity to the Christian scripture requires that Christians join Polycarp in declaring that Christ is our king. My conscience is not the final authority, Christ is. Today, uh, I'm tasked with talking about the effects of the fall on politics, and we could go on and on about the deformity of politics, all that is wrong, uh, how ideologies turn into idolatries to disastrous effect. And we can do that in a really uh, heady way, which maybe is what I just did. Uh, apologies to that. We could do it in a really practical way where we just open up a newspaper and just like point out all the sin uh, that is just covers our news. Um, if we're looking to make a case for human depravity, politics provides endless source material. Um, but I doubt any of us really need to be reminded about the misuse of power. Uh, I trust you're pretty good at recognizing the illegitimate use of power. And so what I want to talk about this morning from Genesis 9 is how the fall impacts legitimate authority. What is legitimate authority in a fallen world? What does it look like? Uh, last week, CJ spoke about mankind's authority in a perfect world. God, the author, with all authority, shares his creative power with humans. Uh, after creating mankind, male and female, it says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Um, But what happens to this charge after humanity rebels? Do we still have dominion? And if so, has that dominion been changed in any way? And so today's text repeats so much of that covenant in, uh, in Genesis 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same language from Genesis 1. Uh, He talks about having dominion over all the realms. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And so he's giving mankind dominion over all the parts of creation, day one, two, and three, the sky, the waters, and the land. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Um, And so here we're beginning to see there's a change. There's an adjustment in Genesis 9 that's different from Genesis 1. Um, Here, you shall not eat flesh with its life that is blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so we have a lot of the same stuff here. We have be fruitful and multiply. We're given dominion over every realm of the earth. God again says that man is created in God's image. We haven't lost our status as image bearers. But there's a big difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. And what is that difference? It's the reality of death, that suddenly death is very present. And so our image bearing has to take that into effect. Genesis 8 and 9 reeks of death. Uh, This is no Eden. This is not a utopian vision like the political ideologies we're accustomed to. It is utterly realistic. Uh, The world has just been completely destroyed by a flood because of the extreme wickedness of man. And so Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the earth, for I am sorry that I have made them. And God did exactly that. Uh, He flooded the earth and killed everything, um, all flesh on the earth, including mankind, um, except for Noah and his sons and their families. And immediately after the flood, though, Noah gets off the boat. And what does he do? He builds an altar and makes a sacrifice. So again, more death immediately after the flood. It's not like we return to a death-free world. And while smelling that sacrifice, the Lord makes a decision. He says, when the Lord smelled, Genesis says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is a surprising decision. um, Because Genesis 8 says that still 
Even now, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The only men around are Noah and his sons. And so we know that he's, he's looking into their hearts. He's looking into Noah's heart, and he sees that they are still full of evil intentions. They remain sinful to their core. But because of God's mercy and in light of Noah's sacrifice, God commits to never again wipe out all flesh. And in Genesis 8, he says this to himself. In Genesis 9, he shares with Noah his decision. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, that's us, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so what is happening here and what does it have to do with government? Well, in Genesis 9, God promises to delay the just punishment for sin. That's what the rainbow is. Um, I have set my bow in the cloud. There's no word for rainbow in Hebrew. Uh, This isn't a Lisa Frank reference. Uh, This is an archer's bow. Um, The word here is for a weapon. And God is setting aside his weapon, even though sin deserves death. Uh, He will graciously wait to execute justice until the end of history. Uh, This doesn't mean that God is not in charge. He still has the sword, but he promises not to swing it. Uh, Because if he did, history would be over. We'd be done. Um, By delaying justice, God is creating space for grace. Um, But that leaves us with a problem. Um, Prior to the flood, humanity descended into absolute chaos. Right? We began with Cain killing Abel immediately. We end with his great-great-great-grandson Lamech, who boasts about it, right? God is binding himself. Uh, He will not destroy the earth. That's good news, but we need to be bound too um, in order not to devolve into anarchy. And that's what we have in Genesis 9. Adding to the cultural mandate, we have a justice mandate. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, this is the word for brother. And so we were remembering Cain when he said, am I my brother's keeper? And here he's saying, yes, from his brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Um, A couple interesting things about these verses. First, it grants permission for a carefully calibrated justice. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's the permission to kill, but it can be, but it can also be read as a general call for justice, with execution being the like most extreme form. Um, But it includes everything underneath it. Uh, Later, uh, Hebrew law will use the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that can feel super harsh to us, right? But if you think about it, a tooth for a tooth, it's protecting cultures from unjustly applied justice, right? From either neglecting to to pursue justice um, and punish crimes against other people, or by over-punishing, by uh, extreme punishment, excessive punishment. Um, Notice, though, that humanity is not given the authority to enforce sins against God. 
they're enforcing sins against the lifeblood of men. Um, Jonathan Lehman writes, God lays down his bow of war here and promises to not punish humanity presently for their wickedness as he has done in the flood. But to ensure that social chaos does not ensue, he licenses humans to protect themselves against harm from one another with the justice mechanism. What he specifically does not do in this same moment is authorize humans to prosecute crime or sin against God. There is no authorization to prosecute false worship, idolatry, atheism, unless these crimes manifest themselves as crimes against humans. And so we have a justice mandate in Genesis 9, including a permission to kill. And importantly, it grounds that permission in the image of God. Uh, Many of you uh, know that John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, died on Friday, and for 30 years he was a congressman from Atlanta, and before that a brave activist with the civil rights movement of the 60s. Um, In fact, at the crazy young age of 23, he opened uh, for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And in that speech, he explained the aim of the civil rights movement. He says, by the force of our demands, our determination and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. Congressman Lewis knew that civil rights are founded upon our creation and the image of God that that is the aim, to preserve and protect God's image. We do not get our dignity, our human dignity, from being male or female, by being black or white, being well-born or accomplished, rich or poor. Our dignity does not depend on whether we're holy or sinful. Uh, The most wicked person on the planet has dignity as being created in the image of God. Human dignity comes from our status as image bearers. Humans are allowed to eat animals, right? They're never allowed to eat people, literally or metaphorically. And so later in Isaiah, the prophet is, Isaiah is indicting the people for their corrupt oppression of the poor. And he tells them they have blood on their hands. They're murderers because of their economic policies against uh, poor people. Uh, widows, orphans, and strangers. Genesis 9 is just as much about oppression as murder. Notice that people are not given dominion over other people. Only God has dominion over people. That's why the vision for a king in the Old Testament is a servant king, right? Kings have authority. They have delegated authority, but not dominion. The authority of the king is wielded in order to serve, to serve God and others. When a government or anyone unjustly takes the life of a person, they are failing to serve God and man. It is as if one of God's servants is running around his kingdom defacing portraits of his son. Uh, To take the life of a person is akin to slashing pictures of Christ. It is not just tragic, it is offensive, it's the activity of a traitor. But God has set aside his bow in the sky, he's put away his weapon, and he delegates that authority of defending the image of God to people, to us. And that's the last point in Genesis 9, which is so important for us. Um, The duty to maintain justice is a duty given to all people everywhere. Genesis 9, 6 
whoever sheds the blood of man, for that man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. He doesn't create a special class of people to authorize. He, he puts the call for justice to all people. He doesn't offer explicit instruction on how to choose, who's responsible, who should govern, how government should be formed. Should it be a monarchy? Should it be popular vote, conquest? The Bible really doesn't say. Um, it'll have a lot of opinions about Israel because Israel is a special nation, a holy nation. It has opinions about the church, which is a different kind of nation. But it's non-committal about structure. It's non-committal about the scope of government. What should government take on? Probably more than murder. It, government is not only to step in for the sake of murder, but how much more? It's hard to know. A wisdom wins the day. Some places aren't suited to be liberal democracies. And so when America sort of marches into the Middle East and tries to create a liberal democracy, it doesn't work. Um, it's maybe not the best place. The Bible doesn't have opinion that the whole world should be covered with liberal democracies. Uh, even if we think our government's pretty great, we've got no business nation building. However, what Genesis 9 does do is obligate all human beings as a matter of obedience to God to preserve justice. They are to protect the life of man because God, man, God is cre man is created in God's image. And they do that so that 9-1 and 9-7 can be pursued, that mankind would be fruitful and multiply. Because of our commitment to the glory of God as displayed in the image of God, we should not stand by idly while crimes against humans occur. Humans in society together must pursue justice because God obligates them to do it. And this is what allows for protests. This is what allows for revolutions. Um, Jonathan Lehman writes, a characteristically unjust government, by virtue of its injustice, has exceeded its authorization and self-refuted its own mandate thereby triggering the covenant with Noah against itself so that people are enforcing the dignity of man against the king. This is what a protest is. This is what a revolution is. Um, now, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about what submission to government looks like when we discuss Romans 13. Um, but for now, what we can say is that governments don't have to be Christian in order to be legitimate, but they have to be just. They don't have to be perfect, but they have to preserve the life of man. God will demand a reckoning for spilled blood. We see that in Cain and Abel, and that is reaffirmed in Genesis 9. Every ruler is ruled by God, as is every subject. We will all be held to account. Um, now, there's a tension that inevitably exists in a fallen world between the absolute authority of God and the delegated authority of a still sinful mankind. And so it creates lots of questions, lots of Details where we have to humbly come before the Lord. Uh, we have to seek wisdom. We have to, uh, we have to talk and have conversations and figure out what does the Lord call us to do in good conscience. But we know that 
God will one day, when the old world is becoming the new world, he's going to take that bow back down uh, from the sky. And, and we're living in between in light of that future day. Um, this is a lot. Um, faithfulness is complex. Um, and we've only just begun. Um, it's important to remember we've still got a lot of Bible left. This is just Genesis 9. And so the rest of the Bible will begin to fill in some of the details. Uh, we don't stop here. We need the whole counsel of God to live faithfully in this world. Um, but Genesis 9 helps set the stage um, by telling us God's purpose for legitimate government in a fallen world. Uh, he is making time. He is making time to save the world by grace through faith in Christ. And government here sort of holds, uh, holds that time to justly preserve human life, however narrowly or widely defined. Um, I wonder uh, what questions this text and uh, interpretation of legitimate government, what questions does it raise for you? So as we think about trying to fill in the details how is this challenging? How does this disrupt how you think about government? What are the, what's, what's riling you up in hearing this, if anything? I think one question that I um, continually think about is uh, in order to have just government, you have to have just people. And if people are sinful, how can you therefore have just government? It seems to um, be a negative loop. Yeah. Um, and and if everyone has authority within a particular system to claim justice, at what point do I or someone else like usurp someone else's authority because they're not being just? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, even thinking of John Lewis again, where he uh, made that famous stand. I think it was after the Pulse shooting. Um, but he said like his rule of thumb is if you see anything unjust, stand up against it, speak up. Um, but obviously there's so much injustice. Um, and, but we looked at John Lewis and were so impressed as somebody who was born the son of a, of sharecroppers, um, and clawed his way for the good of other people, increasing his influence tremendously, where he's a congressman for 30 years. Um, and so we have such admiration for John Lewis. Is, and you just, you're challenged, like, is that what we're all supposed to do? Um, yeah, um, his story is, is really challenging to us. But there, there certainly could be like a usurping of, of authority. And so when do we know when we're doing that? What are other, like, questions or, or problems with this? I think a big thing that I've been wrestling with and thinking about related to this is sort of the question of commonness. Um, you know, what does a people, a nation, or a city, whatever, but particularly nations need to have in common? I think it's... Uh, helpful to see the ways in which God knew that it was, you know, like that he didn't expect everyone to 
follow him and, and develop like a different standard for commonness around justice. But when I think about the current United States, it's hard to even think of common threads that cross right and left or um, secular and religious. And I think it's, it's an important challenge for us to think about how do we translate um, you know, the things that we want to carry over into the kind of that like common good or what we want our government to show um, versus just what it seems like right now where it's more like, you know, the biggest side or the most powerful side wins and the other side just has to go along instead of really trying to find the common ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Like democracy, you know, especially like a pure democracy, which which we don't live in, but like if we're just voting, I, I uh, read a funny thing that democracy has to be more than uh, two wolves and a bunny voting f- what's for dinner. Um, like that is not, uh, that's not a fair system, right? Uh, the money's going to lose out. And so we can't just be a pure democracy where it's just like whoever has the most people wins the battle. Um, that's a lot of what we're seeing now is the, uh, corruption of both liberalism, which is like hyper individualism, um, and democracy, which is the majority rules. And so we want to be a people that attends, that has virtues and um, respects the image of God in the smallest members of society uh, who can't vote, um, who don't vote. As a Christian, sort of like walking through legitimate but fallen governments um so legitimate and sinful like what is hard about that those are just tensions that are really hard to hold and so it feels like if i can't hold that tension i'm just gonna dissolve to one side or the other i'm either gonna like like delegitimize government all the way and just be like dude i'm out which is sort of my tendency is to be like, man, I just don't care. Like, this is stupid and I'm not going to participate at all. You guys are all crazy, you know, and sort of delegitimize it and just kind of like, oh, I guess I just put up with whatever government is instituted. Um, or I like go all in and demand perfection of the system and expect mm-hmm. that. And then, and sort of like, then I sort of, place way too much focus on whatever governmental structure and so it often for me feels like I have to choose between those two like ends of the spectrum to live in tension of both feels really really hard for me yeah and I mean when we think about you know we're, we're talking about government and so a lot of times immediately think of like national politics but um that tension exists in our workplace you know, which is a, which is a hierarchy, you know, with people in authority and people under authority. And a lot of times our jobs, um, you know, if, if you're not in, in, in my situation where I'm working for the church, um, which has a different dynamic, um, the people at your job have, have a different focus than you do. And so how do I live and flourish and contribute to this mini government whether that be um, a restaurant or Apple or whatever it might be, who has the aim of making money, being awesome, impressing people, like all these sorts of things. How do I live within that with Christ as my king? Where, you know, work as to the Lord and not for man. 
How do we vote as to the Lord and not for man? That tension is evident in every place in the world. Genesis 9 is sort of acknowledging that we're going to spend a good bit of time like living in and among sinful people. And how are we going to do that? Um, this is a lot, um, again, yeah, faithfulness is so complex and we can tend to like struggle, um, and sort of get frustrated that it should be easier than it is. Um, but, um, if we think about, um, the reason for Genesis 9, The reason is not just sin. Uh, The reason is mercy, um, is patience. Uh, Genesis 9 reminds us that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, perish. And so we complain that God is slow. Why won't he stop this? Why won't he come again? Why can't it be easier? Um, And 2 Peter 3.9 says, um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so in Genesis 9, God is being patient, making time for mercy. And so we complain that life and faithfulness in a fallen world is so complex, and we're frustrated with that. But if simplicity was God's aim, Right? He would have killed Adam and Eve in the garden like he told them he would. They ate the fruit, and so now you die. Um, if simplicity was God's aim, he could have killed Noah's family along with everybody else and just wiped the whole world, um, seeing as how he too was a sinner. But instead, in the covenant with Noah, he sets aside his bow and gives humanity a limited authority to execute justice, knowing that they would never do it rightly, Um, knowing sometimes they would actually be terrible and be agents of injustice, as terrible as before the flood. But at least in this way, he could make a way for some to be saved. God, in his mercy, promised mankind that he would restrain himself, delay justice, binding himself by his own covenant. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Um, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And to communicate how big a deal that is, he gave himself the rainbow. Uh, Genesis 9 says that God is, that the rainbow is for him. It's not for us. We like it. It looks pretty and it's nice. Like we take pictures of double rainbows like we love it so much. But the rainbow is more for him. It's a sign for him so that he is reminded every time he sees the rainbow to stop the rain, to not just let it keep raining and wash the sin away. Um, He sees the rainbow. He restrains himself. And instead of killing mankind, Acts 17 says he institutes government. It says God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
That is the purpose of government, to create space for people, allotted times, allotted spaces, that they would have the opportunity to live long, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And because even that is not enough, he sent his only son to find us, right? To stand in our place, to be unjustly killed so that we would not be justly killed. And now we exist to proclaim this gospel. God calls us to make our lives in the kingdoms of the world, loving mercy, doing justice, speaking truth, and most importantly, telling the good news to everyone who will hear. To help people from every nation as they feel their way toward God. To help them find him, to take their hands and guide them to Christ. To be a church which says Liberalism is not the answer to the world's problems. Socialism isn't the answer. No Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, no revolutionary is the answer to the world's problems. Technology isn't. Jesus is who they are feeling for. Jesus is the king they need. And so we stand here as ambassadors for another kingdom cooperating, working within those systems, but ultimately pleading with people to be reconciled to God, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the rainbow and the covenant that it represents. We know that you see the effects of sin so much more profoundly, deeply than we do. You are way more grieved at the state of this country and every country than we are. And yet, every time it rains, you see the rainbow and are reminded that you put away the bow that you put it away so that you would make time, that you would be patient so that some might be saved, so that people might feel their way towards you. And then you sent your people. You chose your people. You changed them. You sent the Spirit to them. You sent Jesus to them that we might be Agents of change, messengers, apostles, missionaries, sharing the gospel so that these same people who are feeling their way toward God might find them. Father, I pray that you would help us know how to navigate the complexities of government, legitimate government in a fallen world, uh, that we would see the idolatries uh, that are involved when people um, complain about um, regulations and rules and injustice and, and, and how they see some truth, um, but that they're missing a ton. Um, you would, would you protect us from worldly philosophies and, and structures? Help us to stay faithful to you. Help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Um, but ultimately, we ask that you would... Um, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, and that we would be part of that. Um, we thank you for your patience. 
Uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.